Well, God is good. Amen? Amen. It has uh, often been said that imitation is the highest form of flattery. Unfortunately, we don't always imitate that which should be imitated. And I was reminded of this truth last week as my wife Victoria and I got together to put together a, a PowerPoint presentation of our life story that we were going to present at our small group that week. And so this required going back and looking through some old photographs, which revealed a time in my life when I imitated something that, shall I say, might have been a mistake. It was a uh, popular haircut, <laughs> circa 1995, um, where you would part your hair in the middle and comb it down the sides and grow the bangs a little bit long to hang out in front of your face. And just to give you a little bit of context, and because you can't shame a man with no pride, I'm going to show you my eighth grade yearbook right here. Look at that guy. Now that's commitment right there. Drink it in right there. All right. Now, uh, well, that picture is a little bit humiliating in the same uh, area of my life was this picture, which is less so, and so y'all are going to have to humor me. Um, this is uh, a picture of me in eighth grade, and the beautiful young gal, two people over from me, is my future wife, though at the time she was not aware of this, so that took a while. Um, <laughs> but that's me sitting with my future wife at my future in-laws, holding my future niece, who had just been born. So that, yeah, aw, right? I mean, that's cool. So the haircut didn't destroy everything. (laughs) But uh, I I got this haircut because there was an actor named Jared Leto, who at the time was starring in this show that was all the rage called My So-Called Life. And he parted his hair this way, and all the girls at Hobby Middle School were just completely enamored with this guy. And so I figured, let's give it a shot, you know? (laughs) What do I have to lose? And... um, So I I grew it out, and though it turned out that uh, it didn't have quite the same appeal on my head, and so in ninth grade, I went back to the high fade, which I've had since these past 20 years. And that's kind of funny, but it really is amazing to think about the amount of time, money, and energy we put in to imitating somebody, to looking like somebody else. From the clothes we wear to the way we talk, the car we drive, where we go eat, what's trendy. We spend so much time and energy trying to figure out what's cool so I can copy that so somehow I can increase my value or increase my self-worth. And as we're going to see this morning, you know, the idea of imitation is not a bad thing. The fact that we are all imitators is not bad. The issue, the question is who do we imitate? Who is it that we imitate? Because at the end of the day, there's only one worth imitating. There's only one worth changing everything for so that you could look like them. And that is God. And so I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles this morning or get out your phones and and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 where we're going to unpack what it means to be an imitator of God as we reveal and reflect his character and his nature. Opening up to chapter 5 and verse 1, 
in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, it is God's desire and his design that we imitate him. And the Greek word used here for imitate is one that is used seven times in the New Testament, and it's always with a positive connotation. So sometimes we think of imitate and we think bad. But the scriptures in the New Testament say imitate good, imitate Christ. And it literally means to follow in one's tracks, to behave identical to someone else. And it is a command to imitate God. It is part of his eternal design for his people. We see that in the book of Romans chapter 8 when Paul writes to the church there. In verse 29 he says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We, our destiny involves being conformed to the image of Christ. The Christian life is ultimately one of imitation. And the fascinating, this is a fascinating paradox. But the truths that come out of this are powerful. Because it is through imitation that we actually find our greatest freedom. It is through imitation that we find our clearest purpose. And it is through imitation that we actually discover our authentic and true self. We were created to be conformed to the image of Christ. We were created to be imitators. We were created to image the very God who created us. And this process of imitation is not one that eliminates what makes us unique as individuals. But rather it is the very process by which we become the individuals that God has lovingly created us to be. As the great church father Augustine wrote, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Thus, imitating God is not a burden. It's not a burden that God is ruthlessly required of the believer, but rather a blessing that he has graciously decreed for our benefit, for the benefit of others, and for his glory. And so here in verse 1, we are told, therefore, be imitators of God. And yet before he tells us how, he reminds us of who we are. Remember, when it comes to Paul, position informs practice. Position informs practice. So before he tells you even how to imitate God, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. Do not miss that. You see, the, this process, this, this imitation of God begins not by a doing, but by a receiving. John 1.12, but many has received him. To them he, he's given the right to become children of God. To all who believe on his name. Imitation starts with adoption. It starts with adoption. The gracious act of God saying, I'm not only forgiving you of your sin, I am taking you and placing you into the very family of God as a son and as a daughter. So it is imperative that we never lose sight of the fact that God takes great pleasure in being our Father. 
And that God takes immense joy in the fact that we are a part of his family. And as I think about the love of the Father, I cannot help but think of my own life and my role as a dad. Anybody who who knows me, or at least knows me well, knows that I love, love being a dad. I just love it. And I I, I love kids, and I, I love kids in general. We, Wayside has just been so blessed with kids and families. They're just running around all the time. And I just love the kids. I love your kids. But the honest to goodness truth is I don't love your kids as much as I love my kids. I love my kids more than I love your kids. And it's not because my kids are better. It is because my kids are mine. They're mine. And there's nothing like the love of a parent for their child. And that's how God sees you. Because this is not just true for biological parents. This goes for adoptive parents as well. I mean, one of the things I love about Wayside is the heart for adoption this church has. It just fills, it just fills me to the brim. And uh, we have a, as I said, Victoria, my wife and I are in a small group here. And one of the, the couples in our small group are Adam and Suzanne Melodeo. And they are a family that has taken this step of adoption, which is probably the clearest picture of the gospel that we have on earth. And in the Melodeo's case, they've adopted three children from China, Anthony, Grace, and Eva. And each time Adam and Suzanne went over to China to get one of their children, they signed off on documents saying, they now belong to us. They are ours. And as part of that adoption, they gave each one a new name, a new family, a new beginning, a new residence, a new life. And those changes were permanent They can't give them back, and they wouldn't give them back. They love those three beautiful kids. Those are their beloved children whom they would do anything for. And this is such a picture of what God has done for us. He didn't just go from America to China. He left heaven and came to earth and took on flesh in the form of a man and willingly gave his life. And he didn't, he didn't just sacrifice. He didn't just sacrifice. Or it, it didn't just cost him a lot to, get, to pay for a plane flight and to pay for the adoption papers and procedures and things of that nature. He paid by giving his life as he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. And he sacrificed unspeakable glory for a time to do what was necessary to go get his children and bring them home. And he signed the paperwork with his blood. It is finished. Sealing the deal. Saying to his beloved children, you are mine. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Now and forever. And as a result of that, he's given us a new identity. We are a new creation. We have a new family. We have a new hope. Because of God's work on our behalf. It's just so powerful. It's such a beautiful picture. 
And so imitation begins with adoption. It begins with adoption. But what does imitation actually look like? I mean, how does one imitate the creator and redeemer of the universe who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I mean, where do we begin? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. Paul tells us that those who imitate God as his beloved children do so by living a life of sacrificial love. The clearest imitation and the greatest representation of who God is is a life lived of sacrificial love. That's why in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is completing his ministry and he's going towards the end, he's meeting with his disciples in John chapter 13, this is exactly what he tells them. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. By the way you love one another. Jesus declares that love for one another will be the defining characteristic of those who belong to him. That's the ticket. That's the defining characteristic in the life of the believer. And then when he describes that love, in case they're confused, he says that love is going to be an exact replica. That love is going to be modeled on the love that I have shown you. And when you think about the love of God, it is just overwhelming. I mean, what is the love of God like? It is a love that is relational, unselfish, and sacrificial. It involves a willful, conscious, and joyful giving of oneself to another. It is the type of love that transforms hearts, that transforms marriages, that transforms families and communities, and that transforms the world. And this is the type of love that God has called us into. And that should not surprise us. Because when we understand the nature and the character of our God, we realize that the very thing we are commanded to do is the very thing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always done. As God is eternally engaged in a relational, other-oriented, self-giving, sacrificial love within the very Trinity. And so it is no surprise that the type of love that defines God is the type of love that he has called us into and called us to imitate. And as those who imitate him, we are to walk in love as Christ loved us, which is a high calling. And then starting in verse 3, we see that we're not only called to walk in love, Verses 3 through 7 are going to show us that we're called to walk in holiness as well. Walk in holiness. Now, when we think of God as holy, what that means is that God has been, is set apart. He is distinct from creation. And in his set-apartness, in his distinctiveness, he is perfect in all that he is, and he's perfect in all that he does. And so because of that, and because we are to imitate him, there therefore are certain things that have no place in the life of the believer. They do not belong. And that's his point in verses 3 through 7. 
And he focuses on two categories. Our conduct and our conversations. Our conduct and our conversations. Look at verse 3. He starts off in verse 3 saying, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So Paul starts off in verse 3 by speaking about immoral conduct with an emphasis on sexual immorality. He uses the word porneia. It's the root of where we get the word pornography or pornographic. And, and, and what it literally means is to sell off. It's to sell off your purity. It's to surrender your sexual purity. And that's what he's talking about here. Any action that undermines God's ultimate design for the fulfillment of human sexuality, which is a lifelong union of one woman and one man within the sanctity of the marriage bond. And Paul focuses on sexual immorality as well as the impurity and greed associated with it, not because it's the only sin, but because it's such a pervasive and powerful sin that destroys To imitate God is to walk in love, and the self-centered practice of sexual immorality is the exact opposite of that. You see, self-indulgence is the opposite of self-sacrifice. They don't match. And while immorality was an issue in Ephesus in the first century, I think we can say it's probably a major issue here with us in the 21st century. Just anecdotally, it is rare that I go more than a week or two without meeting with somebody who is severely struggling with sexual sin and sexual addiction. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I recently came across a study that was done in 2016 by Barna Research. These were just a few of their findings. Almost 6 in 10 young adults seek out pornography either daily, weekly, or monthly. And that is men and women... And believers and unbelievers. It's everybody. This is severe. Not only that, almost 30% of the young adults surveyed by Barna first viewed pornography before puberty. The average age now for a pornographic uh, exposure initiation is around 10 years old. It's incredible. And this has had this numbing, desensitizing effect in many ways on people. Because in this same survey, adults said that not recycling, overeating, and consuming too much water and electricity were more immoral than viewing pornography. And this is not just an issue affecting those who are single, or those who are male, or those who are uh, young. According to the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. I've never quoted them in a sermon before. This is, <laughs> this is a first. 56% of divorce cases involve one party having, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Six out of ten marriages, six out of ten divorces, excuse me, destroyed by sexual immorality, at least. Even Time Magazine... Not exactly Christianity today, right? Did a cover story in 2016 on the devastating impact pornography has had on society. 
In the article, they interview a number of people who were huge proponents of the movement who now have become so scarred by it that they, do, they spend all their time fighting against it. And these are people from a secular background. And the, the point is, is that God could have told, God told us this from the very beginning. He told us it was destructive from the very beginning. It is unfortunate that God is often portrayed as some prude who cannot stand the idea of human sexuality. And, and part of that, honestly, has, has been the church's fault for hundreds of years of our history because we've done a poor job celebrating God's design and his gift of human sexuality. He created us as sexual beings. God invented sex. God is the architect of human sexuality. But like an architect who designs a structure where each aspect of the building has its place and has its purpose, God has created us with great design. And though it's been marred by the fall, the design is there. And his design and desire for humanity in the realm of sexuality is one of purity. Purity. Not because he has some sinister plan to keep us from pleasure, but rather because he is a holy and generous God who wants to, us to experience the fullness of pleasure in his perfect design. And he hates to see his children derailed by destructive behaviors. And I don't need to tell you this. Many of you have either experienced this or you know somebody who's experienced this. Or you're experiencing it right now. You know the fleeting pleasure of immorality. It's gone. You know the heartache that can ensue. And the shame and the damage that it can cause. And it not only threatens our country or our culture. It threatens, it's threatening the church. This is, this is a church issue. That's one of the reasons we're trying to, to engage it. Um, we, we had Dr. Julie Slattery, a seminary-trained clinical, uh, clinical psychologist who is really gifted in this area and speaking into this area. And we brought her in a couple months ago, and she's coming back in March. And we're going to host a conference for women called Authentic Intimacy where she's going to speak into these very issues. And she's powerful. It's a great, great opportunity. We've uh, created a ministry partnership with, with uh, Beyond uh, Be Broken Ministries out of Garden Ridge who specialize in sexual addiction and restoration. They have great resources on their sites. And we are working with them personally as they are training some of our lay leaders and training some of the staff to be better equipped to minister to folks in our body who are suffering and struggling and battling sexual sin. We've developed a list of preferred counselors to refer people to that specialize in engaging these topics in a Christ-centered manner. And as always, we are calling people to connect in community, in their ABFs, in their small groups, in men's and women's discipleship groups, where they can come and be real and take down the facade and open up and experience love and support and healing from brothers and sisters in Christ. We are trying to bring clarity to the significance of the issue, as well as create a space to deal with it and work through it and experience victory over it. Because there's so much shame in the body of Christ because of this. 
so much shame. But God offers forgiveness, he offers hope, and he offers power for his beloved children to walk in victory and to walk in purity. God offers that. That is God's design, and that is his desire as his beloved children who are children of the light. And it's not just immoral behavior that Paul says, hey, stay away from. It's also immoral speech. Right? Verse 4 says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, we've heard a lot about speaking over the last few weeks, right? What we say, because it's so powerful. Ephesians 4, 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need for the moment that gives grace to those who hear. In our speech and our conduct, they really form the two lenses by which people see us. The, the two lenses that give people the 2020 vision of who we are. And I, I really experienced this in a, in a profound way during my time as a coach. So before I came on staff at Wayside, I spent seven years as a high school football and baseball coach. And when I became a coach, I made a commitment. Like I purposed in my heart, I am not going to cuss and I'm not going to be crude. And those are so common in that culture. I was like, I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. And it was not a legalistic thing. It's because I was like, I just, I want my speech to reflect my God. That's what I want. So I'm going to try to lock in on that. And so that, that, was, that was my goal. And I had seen far too many coaches, played with coaches and worked with, played for coaches and worked with coaches who were believers, but whose inability to control their tongue or control their anger hampered their witness. It damaged their witness. So I just purposed, I'm not going to do that. Now I yelled, I got some former players here. I yelled both positive and, and sometimes not as positive encouragement. <laughs> but I wasn't going to cuss and I wasn't going to be crude. And while I was far from perfect, God really protected me in that. And he really gave me victory. And while it may seem like a small deal, I cannot tell you how many times, how many conversations I've had with former players, including one last week who called me up and we got lunch where the thing that stuck with them was the way I spoke around them and the way that I spoke to them. They would say, Coach, you didn't cuss at us. You didn't belittle us. They say, Coach, you tried to find ways to encourage us. They say, Coach, you never degraded women in front of us. And we just weren't used to that. We had never heard someone talk about their wife like that. We had never heard someone talk about their kids like that coach and that's what that's what stayed with them years later and for a number of them the way I spoke around them was what gave me credibility when I spoke the gospel into them and and I'm not trying to pump myself up look I I could have done it better I could have done it better I still can right I'm a work in progress I'm just telling you, my point is that it is imperative that we remember the power of our words. And that for many, you are going to be the closest they ever get to the doors of Wayside. 
You're the, you're the one out there. You're the one in the marketplace. You're the one in the schools. You're the one at the firm. You're the one at the bank. You're the one at the office. And you're the closest thing many are going to get, closest many are going to get to the doors of Wayside. And so how you speak and how you act does matter greatly. It matters greatly. We are to imitate God with our conduct and our conversation. And then when we fall short, which we will, we confess it. We're honest about it. We own it. We go before the Lord and before those whom we've offended. And we walk in grace and forgiveness as those who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. But make no mistake. Our God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. And immoral behavior and immoral speech are not okay. They're not okay. It's not how things ought to be. It is not who we are created to be. And it's not what things will be when thy kingdom come. And this is Paul's point in verses 5 through 7. He says, For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. That's heavy. Now, Paul is not saying here that those who struggle with sin or those who partake in sin are automatically disqualified from the kingdom of God. I mean, if that were the case, whoa, we'd be in bad shape because every single one of us would be disqualified and the, and, and the atoning sacrifice of Christ would have no merit. 1 John 8 says as much. He says if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul has already discussed our salvation in chapter 1. How it was planned by the Father, provided by the Son, and how we're sealed with the Spirit. And our salvation is secure for all eternity. His point here is this. If you are a kingdom person, you are called to live the kingdom life. Kingdom people are to live kingdom lives. Where you imitate God, not the world. And he shows this in verses 5-7. through seven. He's not describing He's not describing struggling saints, okay? He's describing those who are unforgiven, unregenerate sinners. We all struggle. That's not who he's talking about. He even gives them a title. He calls them sons of disobedience. These are not beloved children. These are the sons of disobedience. And he describes these sons of disobedience and how they live. And then he says, therefore, do not become partakers with them. In other words, do not live like them. Do not run with them. Do not act like them. Do not live like them and think it's no big deal. Because those guys, they're not going in the kingdom. They're not going there. So don't think it's no big deal to live like that as a child of the light. And so Paul's message is know who you are. And he tells us that in verse 8. This is his reminder. 
He says, for you were formerly darkness. Past tense. It's who you used to be. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be who you are. You were dead. Ephesians 2. Now you're alive. You were a child of wrath. Now you are a beloved son and daughter. You were in total darkness. Now you are a child of the light. Understand that and live accordingly. He's basically saying, you were a caterpillar. Now you're a butterfly. Quit living like a caterpillar. What are you doing? You've been changed. You have been changed. And that change is completely a result of the grace of God. It's His grace. It's His unmerited favor. It's God's activity on our behalf. Because imitating God begins with adoption. It is defined by sacrificial love and holiness. And it is engineered from beginning to end by God's grace. It is grace that precedes our salvation. It is grace that produces our salvation. It is grace that proceeds from our salvation. As we are led by the Spirit and called to imitate God. It is a result of grace from beginning to end. And the tragedy for so many Christians that I see is that while they will readily embrace God's grace... For the forgiveness of sin. They live the rest of their life. Like hey I got to get this on my own. Got to hit my check boxes. God I got it from here. And grace becomes this old friend. That we used to know. But not a companion. For the modern day. And yet when we lose sight of God's grace. For whatever reason. His wondrous grace. We lose the joy of the Lord and we lose our power in the Lord. It is about receiving and walking in God's grace. A great illustration of this was done by uh, the, the, the wonderful pastor, Charles Spurgeon. I guess you can't go like four sermons without mentioning Charles Spurgeon. It's a rule. And he told a story that I think illustrates this point well. It says, there was a poor European family who had saved for years to buy tickets to sail to America. And once at sea, they carefully rationed the cheese and bread they had brought for the journey. But after three days, the boy complained to his father, I hate cheese sandwiches. If I don't eat anything else before we get to America, I'm going to die. Any of y'all have been on a road trip with youngins, you, know, you see that. I mean, that image doesn't seem crazy. Giving the boy his last nickel, I have not done that, the father told him to go to the ship's galley and buy an ice cream cone. And when the boy returned a long time later with a wide smile, his worried dad asked, where were you? In the galley, eating three ice cream cones and a steak dinner. All that for a nickel? Said the dad. Oh, no. Dad, the food is free. It comes with the ticket comes with the ticket. 
Spurgeon says, indeed, amazing grace, not cheap but free, sufficient to save a wretch like me the first day and then every day for the rest of my life. See, God does not ration his grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And it's not that we are saved by grace and then he removes it and says, now go imitate me. Wretched kid. It's not who our God is. Rather, he calls us into relationship with him on a journey where we become transformed to the very people he lovingly created us to be. As imitators of God and those who imitate by grace. Imitators by grace. And so as we close this morning, I, I, you know, I, I don't know where all of you are spiritually. Everybody comes in through those doors with a story to tell. But what I do know is this. You cannot outrun the grace of God. You cannot outflank it. You cannot outspend it. You cannot outdo it. You cannot outrun the grace of God. You are never too far from home to come home. You're just not. And God says to repent, to stop, turn around, and go back. And you'll see the loving father of the prodigal son there to embrace you. You're never too far from home to come home. Because the grace of God is that powerful. Because it's God himself. And not only can you not outrun the grace of God, friends, you can't outgrow it either. You can't outgrow it. You never graduate from the gospel. You never come to a place where you say, grace need not apply. Our life is a gift of grace every second, every day. The spiritual life is a life that is empowered from beginning to end by God's great grace. So be imitators of God, Paul says. An imitation that was initiated at adoption. An imitation that was exemplified through sacrificial love and holiness. And an imitation that is engineered from beginning to end by the grace of God. For in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Let's pray. God, all of creation is by your grace. I think of Acts 17, which speaks to the fact that nothing from human hands, you, you have needs nothing from human hands. You are completely perfect and holy and self-existent and self-sufficient and loving just for who you are. And yet you chose to create, to invite people to experience who you are by your grace. And even when we rebelled and we turned away and we said, no thanks, you said that you died for us. You came and died for us. And while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And God, I pray if there's anyone in here 
who thinks they're too far from home to come home, that your Holy Spirit would pierce their heart. God, and they would see the lengths you went to adopt them. You went to the farthest off place, to the farthest off beaten path, and you say, come home. And it's by your grace. You came as one of us. You died on a cross. You rose from the grave and you invite us into the eternal life that you have purchased on our behalf. God, may we never lose sight of the glorious grace that comes from you that brought us this new life, that sustains us in this life, and that will complete all of our shortcomings and all of our failures and all of our setbacks and all of the things that we wish we could take back. God, you are going to complete what you began. Philippians 1.6. You're nobody. Nobody can snatch you, snatch us out of your hand. No one falls through your fingertips those who are sealed by your spirit. And God, you are offering us the fullness of life as we imitate you, which is not a burden that should bring pain and distraught, but God, rather a privilege to image the very God who created us. So would you help us walk in love? Would you help us walk in holiness? Would you help us reflect the goodness of who you are? to a world that desperately needs to know that they are loved and that forgiveness is there for them. God, thank you for this church and the way you've been faithful to this church for so many years. Thank you for the people that you have brought here. And God, would you help us be a body of believers that seeks to make you known with our lives and with our lips. God, thank you for this morning. And we pray this expectantly and powerfully in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.